pray that they come this way. Uh, that's something I, I don't see any reason why I can't pray that. Uh, so let's, uh, let's encourage one another in prayer. Uh, and so it's good to see them. Uh, this past week, if you were watching uh, or reading the newspapers, uh, you might have noticed about the deaths that occurred in North Carolina beaches, in Brunswick County. Um, we had a, an acquaintance, a friend of ours that's through the preschool here and uh, through some of the ministries we've done here, that they were there at Sunset Beach at the time and just kind of gave a report of, of uh, four people being swept away, two of which passing, and uh, then there was one uh, elsewhere as well. And, and she was right there next to the family sitting on the beaches and just to be there and to enjoying the family at the beach one moment and then life change for the families uh, another moment. And uh, I was reading the paper about it where uh, basically a couple was being swept out by a riptide. They were not too far out. Uh, but one uh, judge, North Carolina judge uh, from the western part of our state was there and he uh, tried to rescue uh, the couple and uh, was unsuccessful. In fact, he himself was uh, killed, uh, drowned in that uh, uh, pursuit. And uh, the husband came back, but the wife died. And you just thinking through a moment of that's just, it's hard to imagine where you're just enjoying life uh, and they're swept away um, in, in just one moment. And, and it's especially pointing to us because it's here, North Carolina, it's, it's things we've done. It's a place where we were just, uh, our family was at just a couple months ago. Uh, and so uh, it has a, a special connection when you think about it. And you, you have to admire uh, uh, this judge and what he was doing and uh, had the right desire, the right heart. But it tragically was ineffectual in saving the life and losing his own life in the attempt. There's a lot of things to say, well, it's a great sacrifice, there's a great amount of heroism involved in this, but when it's all said and done, it's still ineffectual. I think about that and the loss of physical life, and as I read 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 14 through 17, uh, or rather, verse uh, 15, 14, 15, 16, 17, it has this idea that Paul is saying, Timothy, you're to be a lifeguard, spiritually speaking. We are called, all of us, not just Timothy, but all of us are called to be lifeguards. That's what we are praying just a little bit ago, that God would use us for the saving of our friends' lives. And in that pursuit of spiritual life at stake, Paul is telling Timothy, be effectual. Be effective in that work. Do not be ineffectual. But be effective in that. And as we've read in 2 Timothy, there is a call throughout this book of share in the suffering. Be willing to endure. Uh, in fact, it's, it's stated several times, point blank, verse 3, share in the suffering. And right before that, therefore, be strengthened in the grace of God. And we've seen up to this point, why are, are the, the basis for this suffering? How is it that we can suffer in ministry knowing uh, that we are going to face a price physically, emotionally, financially, uh, liberty-wise? Uh, this was certainly true for Paul as we looked at this last week. As we read, it was kind of lightning for me to 
to see the, the two themes. He says share in suffering, and then the other thing we're going to, uh, from this point on, is going to be false teachers. Share in the suffering, deal with false teachers. And in fact, from verse 14 all the way through, and then in chapter 3, we're going to look at the characteristics of false teachers in 2 Timothy as we look toward the latter days. He says these things are going to go worse and worse. And, and then the other thing that hit me as I was reading this is that he is dealing with false teachers who are in the church of Ephesus. He's not just talking about random people out there. He's saying these are people who are in the body, are labeled in the body. They're not of the body of Christ, as it becomes evident. But they are in the congregations of Ephesus. And it hit me that what Paul is pleading Timothy to do is endure suffering that's going to come at the hand of correcting people who are in the church who are false teachers. And that was just kind of a revelation to me. A lot of times we think, okay, we're going to endure suffering because of those heathens in our country who are not on the same page of us, who will label us various things and will be hateful toward Christ. And that's going to happen as it did happen to Paul. But you can't forget how it is that he got to the criminal courts, that it came in the religious circles first that Paul got it. And it spread out. And so when he's telling Timothy endure suffering, he then says, this is how you're going to deal with false teachers in the church of Ephesus. Uh, and so I think that's just something that's <laughs> kind of poignant uh, for us. As we are in a church, and we are among religious people, don't be surprised when the, the stones thrown are from those who are on the same sideline, so to speak. And that's kind of what Paul is telling Timothy be prepared for what's going to happen. And so we're going to look at this, and I'm just going to give some, some lessons of what makes for effective ministry uh, for Timothy, uh, some things for him to think of, and it's done especially in light of false teachers. It's kind of a contrast uh, passage here. So with this being God's word, I'm going to ask that we stand as we read this. We, our prayer as we read this is that we will be effectual. It doesn't matter what our desire is. The desire of that judge was good, but when it was all said and done, he did not have the means to rescue people. We want to have the means to rescue people that we will obtain salvation with eternal glory. And so I'm going to have in my mind that I'm going to preach this like it's my last time. And I want you to listen like it's your last time. Because it might be. We need to have that sincerity uh, as we listen and preach together. So verse 14. Remind them of these things and charge them before God, not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness. And their talk will spread like gangrene, among whom Mohammedus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. But they are upsetting the faith of some. But God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. 
may be seated. As we begin, he simply says, remind them of these things, which has a backward look at what we've already talked about in chapter 2. So let me just kind of give you a, a little review of some of the things he's saying. He, say, he says, I want you to teach faithful men. So when he says, remind them of these things, he is telling Paul, these ones who you're teaching, who will be able to teach others, I want you to tell them this. Remind them of these things right here. So we looked at that on Father's Day. The idea is that we need to be teaching people the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is upon us as believers to be doing that, and, and especially men, that we are to be teaching, discipling other men how to share the gospel. And you may be thinking, well, how can I do that, Pastor? Well, I'm going to just say the My Hope campaign is a great start. We're trying to give you a package that will help you. And one of the first things is start praying for Five to six men. Start praying for them right now. Look at ways to build relationships with them from now into November. And when comes November time, that you will be ready to invite people to your home to show these series of uh, this video that can present the gospel to them. We're going to be teaching you uh, in your Sunday school classes in uh, August and September how to disciple and, and what we need to be doing in this way. So our church, we want you to to learn how to do this. And so this is the first start. So remind them of these things, uh, that you're to be teaching other men, that we're going to stay faithful to God, we're going to endure and share in the suffering, we're going we're to be single-minded as a soldier, self-disciplined as an athlete, hard-working as a farmer. And remember, there is an eternal re reward of pleasing Him who enlisted you. Remember that there is a, a winning, a prize involved in this, that there is a partaking of the crops. And we look at verse 10, all this... Paul is doing, why is he doing what he's doing? Verse 10, I endure everything for the sake of the elect that they also may obtain salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Why does he endure what he does? So that people may know the Lord. And we, we talked about how this God knows beforehand, those who will make this choice, but it involves still the, the decisions of mankind because Paul is saying, look, if I'm not doing this ministry, then this isn't happening. The more I preach, the more I do this ministry, I, it seems like I meet the elect people as I do that, all right? So it's not ours really to figure out how does God do that? How does God uh, choose in advance and yet have free will? Let me just tell you that is above my pay grade and it's above your pay grade. It's above our mental ability. We're not going to figure out. And, and you know what kind of gets to me? When I do figure out, it won't matter anymore. Because the only way I'm going to figure that out is to be with God and, and removed from this world. And then it won't matter for me anymore. Uh, but all that to say, somehow, some way, God has his way of choosing and knowing in advance his work. And yet still man has free will. I can't reconcile that. But I can say that God is big enough to reconcile that. I can't reconcile it, but God can. And so I'm going to hold on to that. And so uh, we, we've got this idea that Paul is, I'm, I'm involved in this, and, and I'm doing this, and that if I don't do this, then, then that there's lives at stake, eternal lives. If people don't do this, there's eternal lives at stake. And that seems to be his, his thinking in this. That's going to carry us here. Why does he endure this? So that the elect may obtain salvation with eternal glory. And that's why he's going to make sure that, Timothy, you are a proved worker. You are an effectual minister. 
because there are the elect that must obtain eternal glory, salvation with eternal glory, and it's going to happen through effective ministers. And I'm not just talking about pastors. I'm not just talking about Sunday school teachers. I'm talking about any believer in the gospel. Any believer in the gospel. And so that's the idea. He says, remind them of these things. And, and the thing he most recently said, which stands to reason, this is the thing he wants you to remember, is, is verses 11, 12, and 13. Which may have caused you concern last week. This saying is trustworthy. For if we die with him, we also will live with him. If we endure, we also reign with him. So if we die with Christ, we're going to live with him. If we suffer, we will reign. There is, God knows what we're doing. He is aware there is a reward. But then we got verse 12 and 13. It's on the negative. If we deny him, he also will deny us. This is something Jesus himself said. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. And we looked at this as, as that the most uh, logical understanding of this passage is not that, that God is going to be uh, necessarily forgiving everything and, and being faithful to you, though you deny him and live a life apart from God. That's not the understanding here. Now, I'm not saying there's no grace and there's no forgiveness. There is. But the point he seems to be bringing out is that if you're not committed to him then when it's said and done, he's going to be faithful to his own name, and he's going to hold true to who he is. And if you are a person who celebrates sin, you have no place in heaven. Now that's a little distressing in a Southern Baptist church. And I'm born, I'm born, raised Southern Baptist, all right? Um, I want you to understand that. And say, so, well, pastor, you... Saying once, you're not saying once saved, always saved? Well, here's the thing. The big question is, are you saved? That's the big question. Okay? If you define once saved that you walked down an aisle, that you made some prayer at one point in your life, you shook the pastor's hand, you were baptized, you joined a church, you took communion from time to time, but you lived your life in your own way, in your agenda, from the Bible's definition, you don't have the marks of salvation. That teaching is sending people to hell. And I know that Southern Baptists, we tend to go that way. We need to be careful of that, of what the Bible teaches. Now, here's some comfort here, and I, I want to take you right to the end. Right to the end of what we read. Verse 19. Here's God's firm foundation, his two seals of God's kingdom, if you will. Two principles. The Lord knows those who are his, okay? Principle, you hold on, you, you start wondering, well, pastor, I don't know if so-and-so is saved then. And I would say to you, no, you don't know if they're saved. And I would say to you, I don't know if they're saved, but God knows who are his? He is aware. Okay? And so when there's a question of this, you just know God and God alone really knows this. Why do I say God and God alone knows? Because man is capable of large measures of deceit. You know how I know? Because I've lived it. I lived it. 
I know what it's like to be baptized, a pastor's son, and for everyone in their church, and they're thinking, that person's saved. And I knew in my heart I was not. And God knew that I was not. Man is capable of large measures of sin. God knows those who are his. That's one pillar, God's sovereignty. Second pillar, read that in verse 19. And let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. So from God's perspective, God knows those who are his. He knows who his elect is. From man's perspective, as we look at salvation, well, here's the mark. Those who name the name of the Lord departs from iniquity. So when I look at this, I say, well, this is what man can look at. This is all I've got to look at is, is there a change? Is there repentance in that person's life? Are they turning to God and away from sin. And that's why I say if someone's just kind of had some mere profession of faith, but there's not a, a characteristic of turning from iniquity, we are missing one of the pillars. And that's key. And it's the only pillar I can look at as a man, a human. You see what I'm saying? Now next week we're going to look at that passage specifically. Uh, verse 19, and we're going to look at the historical context that is a sermon in of itself. Uh, and so that's going to be next week as we look at that. Uh, so I want you to, to rest with verse 12 and 13 and with verse 19. Because when we read verse 12 and 13, we may start wondering, okay, well, is there security of believer? Yes, there is security of believer. It's what God is done and doing in a person's life, and it's going to be hallmarked by God's electing work, his knowledge, his sovereignty, and it's also going to be done with mankind's turning from sin. When we are saved, what are we saved from? We're saved from God's wrath on our sin, and so it's a, it's a work not just removing us from the penalty of sin, but the very practice of sin. And someday, our great hope in heaven is that we will be removed from the presence of sin. So if someone is living a life characterized of, I won't sin in my life, they don't want heaven. They're standing in opposite ends. Heaven is a place with no sin. If you live your life longing and looking and constantly characterized by looking towards sin, it reveals that heaven's not in your heart. Okay? We're clear? Maybe not. <laughs> You'll send me questions later on. Okay? So as we, we read this, then he says, verse 14, remind them. This is all the reminding part, <laughs> okay? We're still in the reminder part. This is what we're reminding people about, uh, of these things. And then he says, charge them before God. Not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. And so he, now he's looking a little bit at the, the false teachers. He says, understand that we're living our life before God. Charge them before God. Our accountability is before God. Those that who claim the name Christian, who are in the church body, we are living before God. Those who are outside of the church are living before God. I remember talking with one person who was trying to make decisions uh, with their, their spouse, and their spouse wanted to go trans, uh, cross-gender. And I, I was just saying to him, you know what? You may want to live like a man, but before God, regardless of what you want to do, you are held accountable as a man. You're before him. And that's something we need to keep in mind, that we are held accountable for God. So he charges them before God to do what? Not to quarrel about words, which does no good. False teachers have a tendency of producing quarrels. Thrive on it. 
They like drama. Drama goes with them. Every once in a while they say, you know, I don't like the drama, but it, <laughs> how is it it's always around them? There's something there that's being fueled by it. And, and so they're creating quarrels with their words. And, and sometimes it's, it's to have debates about words and, and insignificant doctrines. And I say insignificant that, that it's not primary to the meaning of salvation, primary to the gospel itself. And so they, they will get folks distracted on side issues and so that you don't have time praying for lost people because your mind's set elsewhere. We've got to watch out for that. And so he says, knowing is that they, it does no good. It is a waste of time. It becomes useless, futile, but it gets even worse. It does no good except for it does this. It ruins the hearers. It ruins the hearers. And that's part of what we talk about, how sticks and stones can break bones. But words, words can hurt. Words can destroy. It ruins the hearers. So it's not just to the ones talking, but to the ones listening to the foolishness. This is a word of warning to those of us who are listening. We've got to be careful. It can, it can dismantle who we are. And so this is important to endure for the sake of elect. Be aware of this. Much is at stake. It's interesting. When we read Revelation chapter 2, verse 2 through 6, it's a letter to Ephesus from Jesus. Sometime after this letter from Paul to Timothy, who is at Ephesus. Paul is about to die. In fact, he says later on in the book, he says, come before winter. He, he, may, have, he may have died before winter. But soon, Timothy is to carry on. John later is a, is a minister in Ephesus. Interesting, when Jesus gives his summary of Ephesus. He says this in Revelation 2, verse 2 I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. Evidently, they started learning some lessons here. They started listening to Timothy and Paul. And they said, okay, we've got to figure out who the false teachers are. And then he says, I know you're pa enduring patiently and bearing up for your my name's sake, and you've not grown weary. And so this, this plea to endure suffering, evidently they were enduring suffering, and they're taking on these two lessons. But I have this against you, that you've abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you've fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the works the Nickelodeons, which I also hate. Just a word of warning. We can discern who false teachers are and who are not. We can endure. We can suffer. But if we've lost God's love, then what was the point of the first two? We need to be careful in this. That the love of God stands first. So, that takes us to verse 15. What's the First lesson in being an effectual minister. Effectual ministers seek God's approval. And all of their 
testing of doctrines. Somewhere along the way, they forgot that it's about God and loving Him. And so verse 15, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, sterling silver. One approved. That's, that's the idea of, of uh, having stamped on it something that was tested, filtered out, and it stands approved as legitimate. So when we see the word sterling silver, it's, it's that the impurities have been uh, fired out to a degree, and now you've got silver that remains. And so he says, stand approved before God, one who's seeking God's approval. That, that's what you're living for, looking toward this. I remember uh, getting this lesson when I was preaching, and, and Dr. Paige Patterson, the president of the seminary, was going to come and, and uh, listen to me preach that evening, and, and there were several other pastors, and I remember learning about that that morning, and, and that afternoon, it brought me to further prayer and study of God's Word. I think, oh no, my professor and the president of the seminary is going to be there. And it lifted up another degree of in, in, intensity and anxiety. But somewhere in the praying and preparing for that, I thought, well, wait a second. Why am I that much more worked up about this? Because a man's going to be there when God's there all the time. And so I'm going to just challenge us. When we live life, live it as unto God. And that's why I just want to remind you, listen and apply like it's the last time. Let me preach as though it's the last time because we may be before God at any day. At any moment. And so we want to stand approved before God. We seek God's approval as opposed to false teachers who seem to be lifting up man's approval and what man likes so that it benefits themselves. When you live to God's approval, there are some things you read from God's word, you read by God's, or you listen by God's spirit, and you know that it will not make you popular. But you do it. Because you're not living for the popularity of today's courts, but man's living before God. Never forget Jerry White sharing with me when we were driving back from uh, um, Wilmington area, the uh, Camp Casual. Somewhere in our conversation, he said, Jared, I've kind of made it an unwritten life statement. That I, the only thing that matters is God's will by God's spirit for God's glory. I started thinking about that. The only thing that matters is God's will by God's spirit for God's glory. And that rules out a lot of stuff, doesn't it? But it seems to be what's the point here. Effectual ministers who are working for the salvation of souls for eternal glory, will live as unto God, and that's what matters the most. The good news is that in the approval before God, we've got the grace of God there with us. Part of our our worship is our sacrifice of time and energy. It's not just what you do right here, right now. In fact, your greatest hour of worship may come in the morning. When you're having to take care of a neighbor in an emergency situation that you did not plan. It could very well be that the greatest people worshiping right now might be in the nursery right now. 
It's the place of sacrifice, of time and energy, where we are working to be approved before God to say, God, I live for your glory, your purpose, by your spirit, your will be done. We saw where it took Jesus, that maybe the greatest points of worship was right there on the cross. The questions is not how did he die, but how did he live? Not what did he gain, but what did he give? These are the merits to measure the worth of a man as a man, regardless of birth. Not what was his station, but had he a heart. How did he play his God-given part before God? We keep on reading. He says, verse, as we go on down, verse 15. Be a worker, a workman, a laborer who has no need to be ashamed. Has no need to be ashamed. And it's closely tied with the next part. How is it that you can be unashamed before God? It's because you're rightly handling the word of truth. Rightly handling the word of truth. And we'll talk about that a little bit. But the idea is that you, you live without shame because you have made a decision that your best is to be given to God. Because God has given his son, his grace, his spirit. It produces a desire in our heart to give good sacrifices before God. And so we, we give our guests. I remember my parents when, and we were going through school, and, and the question they would always ask after a, a test is, did you do your best? Did you do your best? And that was the standard they brought to us because it wasn't necessarily whether an A or B or C, D or F, but did you do your best understanding that an A may not have been my best, a B or C might have been my best. And so the questions is not how do we stack up in comparison to one another, but are we presenting our best to the Lord? Are we presenting goats that have flaws as sacrifices? Are we giving our best to the Lord? And so an effective minister serves without shame because he is working well God's truth. So we, we get to verse 3. The effectual, uh, or the next verse, the effectual minister serves the gospel of God. The effectual minister serves the gospel of God. Notice what he says here uh, as we read this. Present your, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. And this is how we know we can do this unashamedly. We are dealing well with God's word. Dealing well with God's word. The rightly handling is the idea of cut straight. We have a, uh, uh, a policy uh, when it comes to desserts, things much sought after to be consumed by our family, you know that's a place of conflict. Um, when you've got more than one child, or me and a child, <laughs> um, it becomes a, a place of conflict. And, and so here's, here's what we do. Uh, we'll have one person cut it, and the other sibling chooses. I, loved it. I remember the first time that I made that statement. You know, bam, one good slice. It was obvious. Okay, the other sibling gets to choose. This look of horror on the one who cut it. Whoa, wait. What? We wanted it to be a fair cut, all right? Uh, and so to be cut well, all right? So that the idea here is, is taking the word of God and 
handling it well. Presenting it in what the text says. Not reading into it your own thoughts, your own ideas of what must be done. Uh, using the Word of God to, to beat people up, but just to teach what the Bible says. What is Scripture? That's one of the reasons I try to do verse by verse. So when you hear me preaching on something, it's not because I'm picking up some issue and, and beating up on it. I want you to understand that I'm teaching about it because that's the next passage that we're coming to. So you get the Scripture. And sometimes it gets me teaching things I don't think I would have chosen. All right? But that's for me as well. Uh, to rightly handle the word of truth, to know what the, the context is saying, what it meant in the day that it was written, as best we can figure out, how it was applied to the hearer then, to understand what is the timeless truth behind that, to apply that to the person today, and, and help people understand, how does this work in my life today? That's what we want to do. That's what I want to be committed to. As a pastor, I know I'm held accountable to that by God. Part of the unique job description that God has given folks who deal with the Word of God. If you're a Sunday school teacher, you need to be doing this. But if you're a believer in the gospel, you need to be doing this. And this is what we present, the gospel. That's it. What we are, sinners, what God is, He's holy, and we're separated, but He is loving and sent his son, humbled himself, sent his son to die on the cross to satisfy his holy wrath for my sin. And I cannot get reconciled with God apart from what Jesus Christ has done. And I need forgiveness. I need his grace. And he gives it to us. And that forgiveness and grace comes with his Holy Spirit that comes into our life. He died and rose again on the third day to prove that that death was effective, that his life is greater than my sin. And now we can live our days being made right with God and doing His will. Present that. It's not do better sermons. It's what God has done for us. Are we aware of it? Are we thinking it? Do we believe it? Do we live it out? We serve the gospel. I became aware of... Uh, new TV show coming out this fall. It just makes me upset. Uh, it's done by the Oxygen Network, which I'm not entirely familiar with. Um, but it's called Preachers of L.A. Just the title itself gives you good fair warning. Known for their fiery sermons, community outreach, passionate followings, pastors become iconic, beloved, sometimes polarizing figures in modern culture, yet few people have access to these larger-than-life men away from the pulpit until now. Reading about, I think they've got six or so pastors that they're focusing on following uh, in their life, in their drama, and it's disgusting. Just is disgusting. It really makes me angry. Um, one of them, Bishop Clarence McClendon, appears throughout the world on his weekly international broadcast, which is available in 250 million homes worldwide. 
This charismatic indicative bishop has been noted for his contemporary and relevant approach to the gospel. He believes the gospel is not only for the down and out, but for the up and out. His ministry spans from Skid Row to the states of Bill Air. When challenged about what many have called his prosperity gospel, Bishop replies, there is no other kind of gospel. Now read, read the word of God. These who are peddling gospel, taking eternal glory, and trading out for monetary glory, fame in this world. Now read what scripture has to say. Verse 16, avoid irreverent babble for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness. It will advance. If you go to 2 Timothy chapter 3, but understand that this and the last days there will come times of difficulty. It goes on and listing out the characteristics of ungodly teachers. Simply saying these will grow worse and worse as time goes on. Do not be surprised when there are men who are committed to a life that's for their own pleasures, and using and peddling the word of God, and peddling salvation, and then a network says, hey, let's just puff that up. That's what we want to see. That's what we want to hear. Teachers, men, women of God, we serve the gospel. That's what we give out. We teach that. We teach that better to be in the courts of the Lord than anywhere else. Better to have a hope in heaven than to have it here on this earth. It's a passing thing. Better to be right with God than to be right with men. Better to surrender ourselves to Jesus Christ than to be a king in Bel Air. We share the gospel. We take joy in what Jesus Christ has done for us. It is always seasoned with grace because the gospel is grace. It's not how good you are, but how good Jesus is. And it's all about what God has done. And so we share this gospel. We present that. We make sure that is what's being given. We keep on reading. It says, rightly handling the word of truth. But avoid irreverent babble, godless chatter. Here's the thing you need to know. Your conduct is tied to what you believe. It is impossible to separate it. When we sin, it's because we don't believe something about God. When we obey, it's because we do believe something about God. I just want to challenge you. There's areas of sin in your life. Think about it. Why do you constantly go back to that sin? What does it say that you believe or don't believe about God? Avoid irreverent Babel, there is communication, there is words and, and that can be done that reveals a lack of belief about God. Maybe we don't believe that God is going to hold us accountable. Second Timothy 3 starts listening out some of those words. Ungrateful, 
unholy, lovers of self, lovers of money, slanderers, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, heartless, unappeasable, without self-control, brutal, not loving, good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. But notice verse 5, section 23, having the appearance of godliness. How is it that you can have all those characteristics but still appear godly? It happens. It happens. They have the appearance of godly despite all these characteristics, but deny its power. Avoid such people. If you are coming across someone who is ungrateful, always complaining, always negative, always slandering, uh, disobedience to parents, and, and you sense the spirit about them, be on guard is contagious. It's contagious. Notice what it says. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness. This teaching and you're always teaching something. You're always teaching something. But this teaching will produce ungodliness, will produce more negativity, more slandering, more unthankfulness, more unholiness, more abuse, more unloving. It will produce that. I was, I was reading uh, the last few days in Titus. It's interesting. In Titus chapter 1, just follow with me. It says, Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect, the knowledge of truth which accords with godliness. Knowledge of truth, which accords with godliness. Truth produces godliness. Teaching good Bible study produces obedience and godliness. If it doesn't, it's ended premature. Continuing on with Titus chapter 2, verse 1 and 2. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. And you go to the end of the chapter, chapter 2, verse 11 through 15. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in the present age, waiting for a blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. He says from the beginning of Titus chapter 2 and at the end, he says, Teach sound doctrine. And in between chapter 2, verse 1, and at the end, is this list of conduct. It's interesting. Teach good doctrine. List of conduct. And at the end, again, the grace of God. What is he saying? Paul is saying to Titus, good doctrine is good conduct. The grace of God produces godliness. The gospel is about God's grace, and in the teaching of the gospel is the means through which grace comes and produces godliness in our life. Why do I want to keep on teaching the gospel? Because it's means by which God uses to change our hearts. If words can hurt, words can also give life when they're by God. The gospel is God's words. When I teach God's word, it is producing godliness. Look at your conduct. Does it reveal that you believe in the gospel? And then he starts naming names. <laughs> That's pretty tough. 
I mean, it's in the Bible. It's recorded for all to see. This is God's word, and he names names. Verse 17, why? Why is this important that he start naming names? Because, well, verse 16 is going to lead more and more on godliness. And verse 17, this talk, this false teaching, apart from the gospel, this, this godless chatter, irreverent babble, what is it compared to in verse 17? Will spread like gangrene. Gangrene was fairly common in <laughs> that day and age, the medical lack of sanitary rules. The idea is that it comes in as an affection that eats the good skin, the good flesh. And it doesn't stop until you die. Godless chatter can act like gangrene in a church and eats a healthy church. Conversation by conversation, heart by heart. It has that effect. Remember, Paul is saying, I'm going to do all things for the sake of the elect, that they may obtain salvation with eternal glory. Paul, suffer with me. Join in with me. Tell these in the church to avoid godless chatter because salvation is at stake. We want to be effectual ministers. So serve the gospel of God is the only thing that will save a person's life. Politics will not save a person's life. We don't want our church to be about politics. Because it has no saving effect. Social good cannot save a person's life. So, so social good is not going to be the mainstay of what a church is about because that's not the gospel. It can be a sign of the gospel. Good families cannot save eternally a person's life. And so our church cannot be about just good families. That can be a sign of the gospel's work. But that can't be the message we give. You go to that church because you want to make sure you learn about being a good family. No, go to that church because they want to learn about how to get right with God and the gospel. Seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added into you. And so we serve that gospel. And so why does Paul name names? Because these are two people who are hurting the very heart of the church. Now he's not, uh, he said elsewhere that we do not have flesh and blood as our enemy. So I would take that with uh, what he says in Ephesians uh, chapter 6 and reconcile it with here that he's not saying that Hymenius and Philetus are enemies, but they have swerved from the truth. They have swerved from the truth, saying the resurrection has already happened and they are upsetting the faith of some. And so that, he's getting to the heart. We don't know everything about these two individuals. Uh, we know that one of them was mentioned earlier in 1 Timothy and he's still unrepentant. Um, but we have some glimpse in verse 18 that they evidently are saying the resurrection has already occurred. So it doesn't matter how you live your life now. It, it, physically, you can do whatever you want because there's, uh, there's no more resurrection. It's already done. And so it gave license uh, to live whatever way you want. So how serious is this? Um, well, can you imagine if I name names? I mean, that's... These are things we don't do anymore. Um, 
get sued doing things like that. Paul doesn't bother him, evidently. He's going to die soon anyway. And he says, Timothy, watch out. Bahaninus, Philetus, they are false teachers. Their talk's going to be like gangrene in the church. Correct them. Instruct them. Give warning to the church. Yes, Timothy, I know if you do that, you're going to become a target by people in the church who follow Hymenaeus and Philetus. They will work against you. They will make your life difficult. They may try to turn you over and bring charges into the civil government. Share in the suffering. It's worth it. It's worth it. Sometimes when we read the scripture, it's not always very encouraging. But it's also a picture of reality. What happened in Timothy's day is what happens in our day. But here's the good news. God knows those who are his. Let everyone who named the name of Christ depart from iniquity. The choice is ours. God says, I know who you are. And it becomes evident to whom you belong by how you live your life. Green Pines Baptist, I would plead with you. As you go, serve up the gospel every chance you've got. And make chances to share with others what God has done. Let us be characterized by that type of talking more than anything else. Because that talking produces life. Let's pray. Father.